let me just take a moment. It was probably 30 years ago, just about this time of year, that my wife, my now wife, uh, and I began attending Redeemer. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to be back in this place and uh, just to see all of what the Lord has been doing at Redeemer and then at Salem, ways done at Grace. So, very grateful for you. Um, in our looking at the narrative of Easter and the resurrection, there's some unfinished business. Uh, There's a disciple, Thomas, who is AWOL, and uh, was not with the disciples on that first night, uh, that first evening when Jesus came and appeared among them. And then there's the unfinished business about Peter, and what uh, Peter had done uh, would have been known to the disciples. Jesus had met with them, uh, but there's still some unfinished business between Jesus and Peter, uh, especially one whose name is The Rock. Um, So tonight we're just going to look at the doubter, Thomas, and we're going to look at the denier, Peter. Um, In our passage uh, and throughout John's gospel, we see a couple things about Thomas. Uh, Thomas, firstly, is willing and consigned to go and to die with Jesus. We first read about Thomas in John chapter 11, where Jesus is going to Bethany um, to minister to Martha and Mary, and especially Lazarus, who has fallen ill and died. The disciples and Jesus had left Judea, but now going back, Thomas realizes that this is going to really up the ante with respect to... uh, things that might happen. They have already attempted to try and, uh, you know, they've conspired to try and stone Jesus to kill him. And Thomas sees that this is what's going to happen if they go back. And so Thomas says, um, let us go with him that we may die with him. So Thomas, if there's this faithfulness, right, that's present um, in Thomas, but, and he's willing to go and die with Jesus, but there's a blindness also because he doesn't understand why Jesus is now going to Judea and ultimately to Jerusalem. It is not so that they might die with him. It's so that he might die for them. So, you know, Thomas is willing, he's consigned uh, to go and to die with Jesus. Thomas also is the, is the one who, you know, kind of in the company, who gets to ask the awkward questions that for fear that it's going to be a stupid question, no one will ask, but he's the one who gives voice to it. And in John chapter 14, it is Thomas who is listening to Jesus teach and Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to go away and where it is that I go, you can't follow me, but I I go away to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and then I'm going to bring you to me and you know the way that I'm going. And Thomas, you know, you can just kind of maybe imagine all the disciples with blank expressions on their face and Thomas is the one says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How, How can we know the way? And that's leads us into the The verse that uh, many of you are familiar with where Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so this this blindness that Thomas has or this inability to see is that Thomas imagines the way as being steps to some place. 
you know, a real place. But Jesus is speaking of the way as a means to something. Uh, he's speaking of the way as a manner of life. He's speaking of the way uh, which will lead ultimately to their reconciliation to the Father. And then this is the next passage that we see of Thomas. We find that Thomas has been absent. And uh, even though his other, his friends, his, the disciples have said, we have seen the risen Lord. Thomas, is, Thomas you know, in, in defiance, you know, a determinedness says, I will not believe unless I place my, see, my, see his hands and place my fingers in his hands and place my hand in his side. I will not, I will never believe. So why is it, right? Why is it that Thomas wasn't there that first night? I, mean, I think that's the thing that kind of provokes our imagination a little bit. What happened that Thomas wasn't there? Um, it's a question that, be, that begs an answer, and we're not really told. Um, but just consider that. Think about that. And then consequently, what, what do you think provokes Thomas's refusal to believe? I mean, he was obviously faithful. Um, and he was obviously engaged with Jesus. Why is it now um, that he won't believe? Now, Jesus does some things for Thomas. Okay? Um, the first thing that he does is that he appears to the disciples in this moment. Now, I don't know what it is that has happened that Jesus has appeared among his disciples. And John tells us that they were all in a room together and the door was locked. Now, so there's lots of speculation as to what that means. And I don't really know what to tell you about that. Other than to say this, one of Jesus's titles and one of the images that meant a lot to John, and he makes use of it later in Revelation, is that Jesus is the one who holds the key of David. And with the key of David, we hear in Revelation and we hear in Isaiah that the one with the key of David, what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And so in some measure here, what Jesus is doing for Thomas is that he's making use of those keys. And that even Thomas's shutting Jesus out Jesus has the keys to that door. Okay, so he makes use of the keys, right, to get, to reach Thomas. He's the, he did it on that first night when, you know, in fear the disciples were gathered together. And he's done it here and has come and stood among them. Um, the second thing that he does is just incredibly sweet and kind and gracious. Jesus gives himself, he offers himself to Thomas. And in, in his saying, don't disbelieve um, but believe, he, he says, he appears and he says, Thomas, have at it. Have at me. Give me your hands, right? Right here. Get, reach in. I mean, he, he give, it's so kind of Jesus to do that. Now, the question is, is, does Thomas need to do that? It doesn't say that he necessarily touched and that he reached in. But, you know, was that enough? That, uh, you know, that Thomas sees the risen Christ and then he falls to his knees and he makes this confession. And Thomas finally sees Jesus and you have this great confession, right, where he says, my Lord and my God. 
Okay? So, Thomas finally does see Jesus. Now, let's look at the denier Peter. What do we see in Peter? Now, Peter's much more, um, he much more parallels John in John's gospel. Um, But there are a number of scenes. There's the one that I mentioned earlier in John chapter 1, where when Jesus first meets him, before Peter has done anything right or wrong, he changes, he basically gives him a new identity. He said, Simon, son of Jonah, right? You are now going to be called Cephas. You're going to be called Peter, the rock. And uh, Peter is going to grow into that name eventually. But, you know, all through the gospel, it doesn't seem like he is, he is growing into that very well. Uh, Peter shows himself in John chapter 6 to be one um, who's, who's desperate. And this, we, we can be a little bit more sympathetic. In the Bread of Life passage, Jesus, you know, at the end of this, this discourse about um, who he is, he says, you know, unless you um, eat my flesh and drink my blood, right, you have no part here, right? And uh, it's very confounding to the people who hear it. And, and as a consequence, many of those who had been following Jesus and listening to him, they, they leave. They say, you know, who can believe this? And Peter stops and he turns and he looks to the disciples and he says, well, what about you? And, and Peter's the one who says, Lord, to whom else are we to go? You have the words of life. Right? So you have this, this sweet... Um, the sweet kind of desperation and clinging that Peter experiences. But then, but then we also see his rashness. Um, in John chapter 13, when Jesus has celebrated, he's instituted the Lord's Supper. And uh, before he does that, he wraps himself in a towel. He disrobes, wraps himself in a towel, and he kneels down before his disciples to wash their feet. And Peter is just shocked. Okay, And he says, Lord, you're not going to do that to me. Right, because maybe in his estimation, and this will go to another thing, his own self-estimation is, I am not going to serve someone who would step this low in service to other people. Right, so it's kind of maybe more about him. But he says, you shall never wash my feet. You know, just great, great confidence that he steps into with that. And Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then Peter, you know, he plays it the other way, almost in the opposite direction. Well, and wash my head and my, you know, wash my whole body. And, and Jesus has to correct him there. But there's this rashness to Peter. And like I said, his confidence in himself. Um, oftentimes what happens uh, with Peter uh, is uh, he makes these great pronouncements of the sorts of things that he's going to do. And, and Jesus says to his disciples at the end of chapter 13, and this is setting up the passage with, that I mentioned earlier with Thomas, Peter says, Lord, you know, why can't I not follow you now? Why can't I go with you where it is that you're going? I will lay down my life for you. Now, always when Peter says stuff like that, you, I can kind of imagine him looking over his shoulder, looking at the other disciples and saying, I don't know about those knuckleheads, you know, but me, I'm right there. I, I'm with you. I'm not ever going to leave you or forsake you. You can count on me. And so there's this great confidence in himself, what he thinks he knows about himself, what he thinks he knows about the situation. His confidence, you know, comes out in, uh, in the synoptic gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus tells them he's going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter says, oh, no, you're not. And, uh, and then he gets the rebuke of all rebukes, 
um, from Jesus at that moment. Um, but, you know, Peter doesn't want to see him go there. He thinks he knows what the plan is. He thinks uh, he, he's very confident in all of that. And then lastly, another thing that maybe we could say about Peter is that he just, he misunderstands it all. Now, Peter's very proud of himself because, I mean, in one of the other gospels, he says, Lord, I've got a sword, right? So when they go out uh, into the garden to pray, Peter knows that there's, there's something that's going to end in violence and he's going to be ready. And we, in fact, know the name of the servant of the high priest because of Peter. Because in the altercation in which the, the temple guards grab Jesus, Peter pulls out that sword and cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear. And his name is Malchus. And we all know Malchus because of, of Peter's misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom and how it is that it's going to come. Um, and what is th that's about to happen? Now, Jesus does some very, right? He, he treats Peter with this great, uh, this great compassion. Uh, you can imagine, or maybe you can imagine, Peter now has left Jerusalem and they've gone back to Galilee. They've been told that Jesus is going to meet them there. Um, but while they're waiting around, Peter, I guess, maybe is just getting some things done. He's going back to what it is that he knows how to do. Um, he knows, goes back to what's comfortable to him. You know, there's been this great kind of tumultuous, uh, you know, awful thing that's happened. This great hope that's kind of been interjected into them. And this newness, this new creation that's beginning and all of what it is that that may mean. And, and Peter has just gone back to fishing. And, you know, fishermen, they, they have responsibilities, things that they need to do. And one of those things that they need to do is they, they need to tend their nets. They tear, they need to be repaired, they get tangled, they need to be untangled um, for the next event. And in some measure, what Jesus is doing with Peter in this moment is that he is untangling Peter. Right? He is tending to Peter. And maybe the mess of... Um, what's going on inside of him. And one of the things that he untangles in Peter is what is it that Peter loves? They've just finished breakfast and Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now I love John as a writer because he is always, oftentimes, I mean, he's ironic. Um, he is oftentimes nebulous in the ways in which he explains things. And so it, it just leaves it open for well, what, is, what does John mean by this? And this is one of those passages. Simon, son of John, as Jesus is saying this, do you love me more than these? Now, what does that mean? I mean, do you love me more than the comfort of the life that you've always known, these fish? You know, you remember, maybe you can imagine Jesus saying, I said that I was going to make you into a fisher of men. And here you are being a fisher of fishishes, right? So, um... You're back here. Do you love me more than this life? This life that you know, this life that's comfortable. That, that could be one way in which you understand the these. He may also say, do you love me more than these as in the other disciples? Do you, do you love me more than you love them? Am I first in your life? Or do you love me more than them? And kind of maybe playing more to his confidence. Um, and his, you know, assertion that, that he's got 
better things going on than the other disciples. Do you love me more than these? And Jesus is beginning this untangling. And, and, and Peter says, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. And then Jesus untang- he untangles what Peter loves. He untangles how Peter is to show that love. Um, throughout these questions, right, this unwinding of his denials, um, this untangling of his denials, he says, um, you're going to love me by caring for my flock, all of my flock. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. The whole broad scope of the ways in which you might care for your flock is included in all of that. From the littlest, right, to the, the greatest, the youngest to the oldest, from the mundane duties of walking through the wilderness to gathering their food uh, and bringing it to them, all of that, this is how it is that you're going to show your love for me by the way in which you care for each other. And I think that's what's in Peter's mind. And when he writes to the church at the end of his life in 1 Peter 5, and he instructs the elders of the congregations to whom he is writing, right, be faithful shepherds of God's flock. I mean, this, I think here he's thinking about his commission with Jesus. And he is passing that on um, to the, those other leaders in the church. So love me by caring for the flock and then love me by following me. And this is by far the heaviest. When, when it says in uh, the end of chapter uh, 20, or 18 and 19 of chapter 21, when he says, look, you, you know, used to have your own way when you were younger, but the time is coming when you're not going to dress yourself. And in fact, you're going to be st- stretched out. And that stretched out is a euphemistic expression. Um, at that time, to be stretched out meant to be stretched out on a cross. Not, not reaching to aspire to great things. It means this is how you're going to die. And in fact, John helps us a little bit understand that that's in fact what Jesus was saying. He says, you're going to love me by following me. And you're going to follow me up to the very place right where it is that I went um, for you. You're going to do that. Um, so he untangles how Peter is to show that love. Right? In his care for the flock and in giving his life for Jesus and for the flock. And then he untangles the confidence of Peter's love. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a sweet... I mean, the, I guess the three times when Jesus is asking, you know, Peter, do you love me? Peter is aware what's going on, you know. And, uh, and finally, it, it breaks him. And he says, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. And in that moment, right, Peter's bravado, his confidence, you know, in himself and his capabilities, it all just kind of comes crashing down. And, and he finally bases his love, right, himself, identifies himself with Jesus and what Jesus knows to be true, who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So there's, there's the, the doubter and the denier. And I want to speak here um, briefly about where doubters and deniers um, oftentimes get tripped up, where it is that they stumble. So the first thing, um, something that C.S. Lewis called the tolerance of misery. Um, In 
The last battle, the last of the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene in which the, dwar- the dwarfs um, are all gathered together with the children in a stable. And they, the children find that when they're in this stable, they're actually being held captive there, but in this stable, it's actually bigger inside the stable than the whole world outside. And um, it's this beautiful scene, then there's this great sumptuous feast is set and the children are, in, uh, are, you know, are partaking of this, and they're being filled, and it's delightful, but the dwarfs won't participate. They, they think the, what's being served them right, to drink is like dishwater and stale bread. It's just it's awful, and they're, and they're complaining about it all. And Aslan, the lion, right, the Christ figure in the last battle, or in the Chronicles of Narnia, says to the children, he says, You see, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison. And so, here it is, right? And so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. And let that sink in. So afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. The toleration of misery... You know, this kind of foolhardiness is this idea of, I'm so afraid of disappointment. I'm so afraid of rejection. I am so afraid um, of what it will cost me. That even though I'm really unhappy now, I'm going to stay in my unhappiness because I know, at least I know that I'm unhappy and why I'm unhappy. At least I have reason maybe to complain about why it is that I'm unhappy. They're so afraid of being taken in by an unreal happiness that they won't be taken out of their real unhappiness. You switch that around in your head and get that? They are so afraid of being taken in by an unreal happiness that they cannot be taken out of their real unhappiness. And so they live in this high-functioning dysfunction and they tolerate their misery. One of, the, one of the gifts of our unhappiness is so that we might cry out to God. Right? Don't waste it. Um, the toleration of misery. Don't be, don't be a high-functioning... You know, don't aspire to high-functioning dysfunction. The second thing is don't merely look at but also look along. There is a reductionism that oftentimes comes in when we think that we know things and we reduce things to an it's only. Okay? So somebody might be taken with the beauty of a sunset and someone else might say, oh, that's only light reflected, you know, refracted through the atmosphere. It's nothing special. It's only that. It doesn't mean anything. It's not significant. It's not beautiful. It's not soul-stirring. It's only. And these are people, right? The, the temptation here for us is that we would stand always and imagine that we know a thing better when we stand outside of it and look at it. In another essay that C.S. Lewis writes, in a, it's called A Meditation in a Tool Shed. He talks about this experience that he has where he goes to the doorway of a tool shed and he opens the door and he can see a light that's coming in and shining um, you know, through a crack in the roof. And in that light, he can see the, the, the particles of dust floating around um, 
And, but he can't see anything else in the tool shed. He can just see the light. Now, that's one way of knowing something, to look at it. He said, but there's another way in which he can know that light, is that he could step into the tool shed and stand in the beam and look along it. And as he looked along it, he saw and came to know other things that he wouldn't have known if he was merely looking at it. By looking along it, he's able to see leaves on the trees. And he's able to see the sun nine million miles away or whatever. Right? So we have this tendency to think that I am safer, that objectivity makes for more real knowledge and more true knowledge. And unless I can ultimately only be objective and come to know something objectively, then all all that I know about it is only valid from that viewpoint. But you know what? Nobody, Nobody wants to be in love by knowing a textbook definition of being in love. I mean, the whole thing about being in love is being inside it, looking along it, not standing out looking at it, But somehow we think that if you're in the midst of it, what you know about it is invalid. Unless I see the marks on his hands and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. And it's another thing then for you to stand in the presence of the risen Christ and to behold his glory. Right? So don't get caught into the trap of uh, of the it's onlys, of, the, of trying to re- reduce things or being caught in reducing things. I, you know, we, we confessed earlier uh, about how our imagination is being soured in this world. And one of the reasons is, is that we have been sold a bill of goods that this objective standing outside of something and looking at it is more real than actually being in it. When Jesus is inviting Thomas to believe, he's saying, stop disbelieving, enter in. Believe. And then the third place, right? The tolerance of misery. Don't merely look at, but look along. Step into it. Step into knowing Christ. Look along the beam. Thirdly, being a miserable Christian. Now, I don't know how you hear that, being a miserable Christian. Maybe you hear that like, you know, with a finger pointed and an accusation. But that's not the way in which I mean it. Even when there are confessions sometimes that we read, we talk about us being miserable sinners. <laughs> you know, we just imagine somebody really angry with a finger and scowling at you. But he's talking more about the unhappiness in sin. Right? The, the, the dissatisfaction and, and the despair of ever being out of it. That's the misery that's the miserableness of, Christ, of sinning, right? But there's a, there are miserable Christians too. I, I am a miserable Christian sometimes. And um, that actually exposes the fault. When I am a miserable Christian, I am a Christian who has become disconnected from what it is that Christ has done for me. I used to live in fear when I was here and was doing youth ministry. Um, the, the thought occurred to me one day that somewhere in the world, the worst youth minister in the world was leading a youth meeting. And I had no reason to believe that wasn't me. You know, what if I am the weak link in every relationship and people are just putting up with me, right? I am the charity. And then it just occurred to me, I am a charity case. 
what if, what if my only goal, um, you know, what if my vocational ministry goal or achievement is that one day people would look at me and they'd say, if Jesus can do something with him, there is hope for me. And could I be okay with that? Well, once I got my head around that, it set me free from the fear, from the regret, from the resentment, from the joylessness, right? From the pressure, right? Being a miserable Christian is a person who's become disconnected from the gospel and what Jesus has done for them. Okay? It's an unrealized, um, an unexperienced um, relationship with Christ. So don't fall into the trap of being a miserable Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not time. I mean, the Bible's full of lament, okay? Um, That's really not what I'm talking about, okay? There are great moments. There are moments of of sadness and sorrow. But even so, we don't grieve as the world grieves, do we? Now, what you can do, maybe what you need to do, is that you need to stop disbelieving and believe Right? Stop keeping it down and enter in. Stop being afraid and step in to a relationship, into a walk with him. You know, are you, are you, do you need to be taken out of something? Do you need to be taken into something? Uh, those of us um, who have beards oftentimes get the question sometimes, you know, especially when we've shaved and we start growing a beard. Um, they say, oh, you started growing a beard. It's like, no. What do we say? I stopped stopping it, right? I just let the beard happen. The beard's always growing. I just stopped stopping the beard from growing, right? Can you do that? Can you look along and step into what it is that he's done for you, what it is that he offers you? Right? Will you look along? I mean, one of the reasons that I've moved to even wearing a clerical collar is this is an idea for me, and this is a manner of me stepping into my role as a pastor. When I walk through Kernersville, people don't go, I wonder what he does. <laughs> you know? Uh, there are expectations then that people have of me. And, in, and it reminds me how, it hasn't changed my heart at all. Um, it's made me a little more cognizant of my driving, but even then, <laughs> you know, it still has not helped me that much. But I, here's the question for you is, what are ways in which you step into your life with Christ? What do you do to inhabit your Christianity? And I I just, I I guess I want to encourage you to explore that. How can you step into, maybe it's in uh, works of service, in ministry, um, applying, you know, making use of your gifts. Maybe it's through creative expressions, right? But in so doing, you're stepping into something. and And I promise you, you will know it in a different way. Um, and it will be, you know, even much more so meaningful. It, it's the thing that Paul is praying for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians 3, he says, I pray that you might know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, doesn't he? Now, he's not saying that you'd be able to stand outside of it and be able to kind of get your, uh, you know, your volume equation and figure it out. He's saying, no, I want you to be able to step in it and walk in it. And what you will find over the course of your life is that you will find that you don't come to the end of it. 
You just keep walking along and going, wow, his love is really big. And there, maybe there are more words that you can't, I mean, you just kind of, from year to year, it's like, his, his love is really, really, really big. I mean, it's really, 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 really big. I mean, you just walk in this amazement. That is, a, that is power. It's a spiritual gift. So I want to ask you tonight, have you allowed Jesus to question you? Have you allowed Jesus to tend your nets? To inquire of you? Have you given him access uh, to meet him? To submit to the one who knows you better than you know yourself? Thomas and Peter's story show us that faith and restoration are not merely limited only to those who were faithful at the first. But salvation comes to those who are faithful at the last. All right? So if you're not, if you're not on the, in the front, right, if you're not at the first, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Right? To enter in now, there's this opportunity for you to know how great his love is for you and for you to love him. Jesus, you know, left us another kind thing that he's done for us is that he's left us more than, than mere information about him. He's left us his spirit and the big theme in John. He's given us the comforter and the counselor, okay, who walks with us in this world, in this life. Jesus has given us fellowship, right? We have a common life. We all come together and we worship and we uh, live our Christian life together. Right? It, it's so, it's interesting that what happens to Thomas when he is confronted with the, tra- you know, what, what he merely imagines is the tragedy of the cross is that he just disappears. Right? Don't forsake the meeting together. You need one another. Right? You need, you need friends and people who can encourage you. Don't let your disappointment drive you into isolation. And then lastly, he's seen to it that you might have sensible signs. He knew it would be hard for you to believe merely words. And so he has given us two very precious sacraments by which we might experience the promise, you know, in our bodies and with our bodies of what it is that he's done for us. So... Let me pray for us, and then um, Ben's going to lead us. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would give us the courage uh, to step into a relationship with you. Uh, Lord, I I ask that you would um, give us courage to forsake our our misery, uh, that we might be taken up. Uh, by the joy of the gospel, um, by the comfort of your presence, by uh, your selfless giving of yourself for us. And Lord, I pray that you would just continue to apply um, your words and the sacrament that we're about to receive um, to encourage and strengthen us, both in our communion with you and our communion with one another. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.